Good morning again. We're reading in the book of Daniel. If you want to turn to Daniel 6, we'll follow along on the screen. Daniel 6 verses 1 through 10. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the officials, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I read a story this past week about the codfish industry, which I know is a little random, uh, but it was fascinating. And maybe you've heard this story too. Maybe you've seen this, but uh, it was fascinating to me. And I'm going to share it with you now because it reminded me a lot of the life of Daniel. So what I found out from this story is that while it's not hard to catch a bunch of codfish, it's really hard to ship them from the East Coast to the West Coast and have them maintain their freshness in the process. And so all of these companies would catch the, cod, catch the codfish up in New England, and, and then they'd try to ship them, ship them to the West Coast. But in the process, all of these fish kept going bad. They tried everything they could. They tried shipping them in freezers to see if they could maintain their freshness that way, but the fish just kind of became mushy and they lost their flavor and there's nothing worse than like a mushy, tasteless glob of fish. Doesn't that just sound disgusting to you? Um, So then they tried shipping them alive and they they got big tanks of salt water and they're like, if we ship them alive, then, then they can't become mushy and awful. And that didn't work either because they died on the way and then they were spoiled by the time they arrived. Nothing worked, business was suffering, they were losing a lot of money until someone finally came up with this brilliant idea of adding a couple of catfish to the tanks. Because evidently catfish and codfish are mortal enemies. And so the idea was if we could throw a couple catfish in these tanks with all the codfish, the catfish will keep the codfish on their toes and they won't have time to die. And so that's what they did. They put the catfish in there and evidently, the, these catfish chased the codfish the entire trip. And, and, 
And so by the time they arrived to the West Coast, the codfish, it was like they had just been caught right out of the ocean. They were so fresh and they were so good. And everyone that ate them were like, this is the best codfish we've ever had. They were as good as new. The hostile environment actually kept them fresh. And the story reminded me a lot of the life of Daniel because from the very first moment that we met him all the way up to where we are now in Daniel chapter six, he has been in the tank surrounded by his worst enemies. He went from being a happy little boy hanging out in the open seas of Jerusalem with his family and his friends and his culture and most importantly, the temple where the presence of his God was to now all of a sudden being in exile in Babylon, surrounded by people who want nothing more than to destroy him. And yet, 60 years later, as we've just seen, Daniel is still fresh as ever. He's still sharp. He's still thriving in the midst of his hostile environment. At this point in Daniel's life, he is roughly 85 years old, which is hard to imagine. And honestly, when I used to read Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel was like a young boy in the lion's den. This guy's 85 years old hanging out with the cats. And not only is he flourishing, but get this, Babylon is flourishing because of him. He has done so well in spite of all of the obstacles he's faced that he's actually been promoted to second in command in the whole kingdom and he is ruling under the king himself. It reminds us of Joseph, right? He hasn't just been kept fresh by the catfish. He has kept them fresh as well. He has become, and this is gonna be the whole point of our sermon, he has become the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, specifically Jeremiah 29.7. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. I want to show it to you again. This is from Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, Jeremiah 29.7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, or you could say in its prosperity, you will find your welfare. Guys, This story, Daniel chapter 6, if you just read the first half of it, if you've grown up in church, you know that the second half is he gets thrown into the lion's den, angel comes, shuts the lion's mouth, he gets delivered. This story is one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. Like, Daniel in the lion's den is up there with David and Goliath. It's up there with Jonah and the whale and Noah and the ark and Samson and Delilah and all of the famous stories. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you've heard this story a dozen times. But what I want you to understand today, what I'm going to try to show you is that this isn't primarily a story about a man surviving a lion's den. This is primarily a story about a man thriving in exile. That's what Daniel 6 is all about. It is Jeremiah 29.7 in action. In other words, if Jeremiah 29 is telling exiles how to live, Daniel 6 is the demonstration of that letter. And as this 85-year-old man carries it out, he becomes proof that the prophet Jeremiah was actually speaking from God, and so his life becomes a template for every single one of us who are living in exile after him, including you and me. Daniel and the lion's den is so much more than a story about what God can do to a bunch of lions and so much more a story about what God can do through just one of his men in a wicked city. So 
This is the last story in the biography section of the book of Daniel. If you were here in in the first week, you might remember that Daniel's broken up into two sections. The first half is biography. It's all about Daniel and his friends living in exile. The second half is prophecy and prayer. This is the last chapter of the biography. But in a lot of ways, this chapter sums up everything that we've seen up until this point. Like, it shows us again. It sums up again. The resolve that we saw in Daniel chapter 1. Remember Daniel's resolve and he wasn't going to eat the king's meat. And then the result of the resolve that he had was vindication and promotion. That's, that's chapter 1. And then, it, and then it shows us again the honesty that Daniel demonstrated in chapter 2. And the promotion that came because of his honesty. And then it shows us again, it points us back to his friends' resolve and courage in chapter 3 when they refused to bow to the golden image and then their vindication and their deliverance. And then again, what happened after that? Their promotion. You guys with me? All right, just making sure. Pulse, pulse check. We here? All right. And then it shows us again, it sums up chapter 4. Honesty and compassion. Honesty, resolve, compassion, which again leads to deliverance and, you guessed it, a promotion. Then it points us back, sums up his honesty and courage in chapter 5, and again, another promotion. So Daniel 6 is essentially the summation, and it is the climax of everything that we have seen so far in these first chapters of Daniel. It sums up what it means to live as an exile in a foreign land, in a hostile land. It's meant to not only show us what is prescribed by God, which means what is how we're supposed to live, but it is meant to show us what is possible with God if we just obey him. So as we wrap up this biographical section today, I want to sum up everything that we've seen so far. and I want to show you what it looks like to be a successful and faithful remnant in the midst of exile. There's six things, actually five things I want to show you. I had to delete a point because it was already getting really long. So there really should be six things, but we're just not going to have time. Maybe, maybe next time. You're all like, thank you. <laughs> five things that I want to show you, five characteristics of a faithful exile. First, a faithful exile is marked by a spirit of excellence. I think we have these slides, Yes. Marked by a spirit of excellence. Daniel 6, look back at the text, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to rule throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because, circle this, an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So just to give you a clear picture of what's going on here, Darius is ruling Babylon as a vice regent of Cyrus the Great. Darius actually isn't his name. Darius is a formal title, just like the Romans had Caesars and the Egyptians had pharaohs. The Medes had Darius, which just comes from the Persian word for king. Um, The word, his real name is too hard for me to say, so I'm not even going to try to say it. But he raises up 120 governors to rule the kingdom and then three officials to rule over them. Daniel is one of those officials until he sets himself apart from the other two officials and he's made the prime minister of the entire kingdom. No wonder everyone is jealous. No wonder they want him gone. 
But the most important thing for us to see from these first three verses is actually why he was given this position in the first place. Verse three tells us, and I told you to circle it, it's because he had an excellent spirit. That means two things. First, it means that he had an excellent attitude or a good attitude, which I'm always trying to get my kids to have a good attitude, you know. He had an excellent attitude and he had a passion for excellence in everything that he did. And so he wasn't just a hard worker, he was a happy worker too. He wasn't just efficient on the job. Daniel was the kind of guy who was enjoyable to be around. He was like Snow White, whistling while he was working. You remember this movie? You're all 20, you don't, know, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Snow White whistled while she worked. All of my illustrations fall flat because you don't even know what I'm talking about. Old Grandpa Dan tackled every job with a smile on his face and a song in his heart. Hard worker, effective worker, and everybody loved to be around him. Guys, get this though. And I want you to pay attention to this because some of you are in jobs that you hate and some of you are in situations that you despise and some of you are working for people who are cruel and unkind and you're surrounded by incompetent, annoying coworkers. Listen to this. It didn't matter that Daniel was a slave It didn't matter that he had been trafficked and taken from his homeland. It didn't matter that he was working for the people who destroyed his city and killed his family and friends. It didn't matter that he knew that he'd only be there for a few more years. He had been promised, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. He's been there for at least 60 at this point. The end is in sight. The light is at the end of the tunnel, now visible. He's on his way out. Doesn't matter though. It doesn't matter that he's seen this prophecy of the statue of the kingdoms and he knows that this Persian empire is temporary, it's transient, and the Greeks are gonna come in and they're gonna take over. So what's the point? None of that matters. He's in a temporary job. He's in a temporary location. He's been forced to take against his will by people who would have been happy to kill him if he didn't have the skill set he had. And yet, every day, he did his job with an excellent spirit. The passion for excellence. So much so that he had an impact on every single person around him. So much so that he was elevated to the very top of the company, which just so happened to be the kingdom of Babylon. He sought the prosperity of the city, and in doing so, he prospered. Again, this is Jeremiah 29. Guys, that is what a faithful exile looks like. And so we need to ask the question of ourselves, how are we doing in exile? What is your spirit like at work? Let's evaluate a little bit. Think of it in like four categories. And of course, they're alliterated. You're welcome. Think of it as like the four C's. Which of these describes you? Are you combative at work? Are you an eight? Like you're a prophet, you're like, I see what's wrong in this place and I'm gonna correct it and I'm gonna bring righteousness to my company and I'm gonna pull, you know, just bulldoze everyone who stands in my way. Like you're always looking to take on someone. You're always looking for a challenge. You've got that little dog complex, you know? <laughs> you just gotta yap at everyone, you know? Like to assert your dominance and let everyone know that you're there and try to, you know, claim your territory a little bit. Nothing worse than a yappy dog. I know some of you have them. Don't ever bring them around me, please. 
I remember my first job ever was at CC's Pizza. It was the only place that hired 14-year-olds at the time, okay? And yes, I started working at 14. My dad would have put me into work at 12 if he could have. I'm trying to do the same thing for my eight-year-old, but nobody will hire him right now. Um, but I was a 14, and I just started working at CC's Pizza. Never eat there, guys, I promise you. It's the worst. I know all the secrets. Um, but I had a boss who was one of the biggest jerks ever, and... He was so combative. And I remember we had gotten the job, we were hired, and before our first night of work, they just so happened to have a staff meeting because they had had the health inspector come out and do the rating, you know, like you see the ratings, and they had gotten a bad rating because it's CC's. And, um, and so they had a staff meeting, and we just happened to be there. This is our first night there on the job. Me and my twin, I'm saying R, everything is our in history because I have a twin, okay? So I'm not a schizophrenic. Um, so we're there, it's our first night of work, and we're surrounded by all these high schoolers, and we're eighth grade. And this guy is yelling, like red in the face, profanities left and right. And I mean, we were homeschooled. We're pretty sheltered at this point in our lives. This is our first like time out in the real world. And we're just sitting there like, we're not even allowed to watch movies with language like this in it. Like, what is going on? Like, dad, can you change the movie rule? Because, you know, we've heard it now. Um, and every once in a while, he'd pause, and he'd catch his breath, and he'd apologize to us. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not usually like this. And then he'd just, like, start blasting everyone again. He was so combative. Now, I was, I was tiny as a 14-year-old. I'm still incredibly skinny. Like, I can do, you know, my neck is nothing. Imagine me as a 14-year-old, okay? It was like a helium balloon with a string. And, uh, and, and my boss used to come up behind me and he used to put his hands around my neck and he'd be like, I could snap your neck like a breadstick. And I'd be like, yes, you could, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Always berating us, always looking for a fight, always trying to assert his dominance. He's middle management at CC Pizza. I feel bad for him now. Maybe you're not like that. Hopefully you're not. <laughs> Some of you are, man. Don't be like that. Maybe you're not like that. Maybe you're not combative. Maybe you're a complainer. Maybe you're the kind of person that is prone to find something to whine about. You're the Eeyore of the office. Everything's a rainy day. Everything's a little gloomy. The hours are too long. The boss is too incompetent. The coworkers are too annoying. The pay is too insignificant. On and on and on it goes. You've got a complaining spirit. Maybe that describes some of you. Or maybe yours isn't combative. Maybe yours isn't complaining. Maybe you're just complacent. This is the one I really struggled with for like my whole life. If you've been here for more than a year, you've heard all my stories. I won't bore you again. C's get degrees was my motto in life. Um, you are always looking for the path of least resistance. You complacent worker, you. <laughs> um, you don't really care that much about doing a good job. You just want to get by. So you maintain the status quo. You do what's required of you to keep your job and not an iota more. No initiative, no energy, just the bare minimum. And so you're the kind of employee that spends hours looking at fantasy football every week or right now watching March Madness. Like that's, that's the kind of employee you are. You're the kind of employee that spends hours scrolling through social media. And you're the kind of employee that's like, if, if you're given three months to do a project, you wait until the last day to get it done. You have a complacent spirit. 
Guys, you could have a combative spirit, you could have a complaining spirit, you could have a complacent spirit, but none of those should ever describe a faithful exile. A faithful exile is meant to have a commendable spirit, the kind of spirit that people look at and say, what is up with that guy? What is up with that girl? Something's going on. Something's off, maybe. Something's weird. Like, that guy has the worst job in the company. Why is he always smiling? Man, that girl just got reamed out by the boss. Why can't I get her to say a negative word about him? Man, that, that guy has passed over for a promotion that he deserved, and yet he's still working his tail off for the company. He's still coming up with new ideas. What is that? It doesn't make any sense. That's what Daniel had. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way. He said, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, sweep streets like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Guys, that is the kind of spirit that Daniel had. That's the kind of spirit that you and I are called to have as well. A faithful exile is marked by a spirit of excellence. So in everything, whatever your hands find to do, do it with the spirit of excellence. Why? Because that glorifies your maker. You've been put on earth for good works. You are his masterpiece, so create a masterpiece for his namesake. Amen? Second, a faithful exile is known by a pursuit of integrity. Look back at verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now this should blow us away. This is really incredible because not only was Daniel a politician, but Daniel was an honest politician. Wow, exactly. As far as I knew, these things didn't exist. I read a report not too long ago that counted up all of our public officials who have been convicted of a crime in the last 20 years. You know how many it was? Convicted, not the people that did a crime. These are the people that committed a crime. 14,405 public officials were convicted of public corruption cases in the last 20 years. 7,700 federal officials, 1,900 state officials, 4,600 local officials. Most of them either had to resign or they served time in prison. And we all know about the, the ones who don't get convicted of anything, right? 14,000. For those of you who are still watching live TV, that was a joke. <laughs> you know that it's an election year, and it's not because you, like, march your calendar. You're like, election year, midterms. I will look forward to this, and I will live for this every day. You know it's an election year because all of your commercials are about how bad everyone is who's running. So-and-so lied on their taxes last year. And 
Like all of this stuff, you know it's an election year because we're just being reminded about how bad and corrupt our politicians are. It is hard to find an honest person. It's almost impossible to find an honest politician. And yet Daniel was both. He was faithful. The text says no error or fault was found in him. His enemies are doing everything they possibly can to find something. Just anything, some dirt that can get, get him kicked out of his position. And you would think that after 60 years of public service, that there would just be at least one bribe, like one under the table dealing, one occasion where he used his power and his position to pad his own pocket. And they can't find anything after 60 years. There were no skeletons hiding in his closet. No bodies buried in the desert. He was an open book. And so the big question again is, can this be said of you? And you're not even a politician. You don't even have power. Can this be said of you? It reminds me of one of the funniest pranks that's ever been pulled off in the history of, I think, pranks. One of the most notorious pranksters of all time, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes. Um, he had a bunch of friends, and uh, he loved to play jokes on his friends. I don't think they liked it that much. But uh, one of the jokes that he decided to play on his friends was that he was going to send 10 of them a telegram, an anonymous telegram. And in the telegram, all that it was going to say, these are all men of great virtue, associates. These are, these are respected men in society. All that the telegram said were these words, flee at once, all is discovered. Just an anonymous letter from, who knows, the police? I don't know. Now, these men look like great men of virtue. They look like they had awesome lives, no skeletons hiding in their closets. I don't think Doyle actually thought of any of them as bad guys, that they were hiding dramatic secrets. But in the end, all of them fled the country. <laughs> Gone. Nothing more than actors wearing masks. Guys, the question that we have to ask ourselves today, and it's a hard one. What if everything about us, everything inside of us, all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our true desires, all of our actions, everything that's done in the dark, what if all of it was found out? Everything was brought into the light. What if you got a telegram today? All is discovered. Flee at once. This is so important. Guys, because if we're going to care for the well-being of our culture in our exile, this, this foreign land that's not our home, the ultimate way we're going to do that is by pointing people to Jesus, the one who can take them to where they were created to be in the presence of God. But in order for us to do that, we actually have to live lives of integrity. We have to practice what we preach. We've got to walk out what we talk. Um, our exile is unique because we have the freedom of speech. And this is unique for exiles in the history of the world. This is unique even in the world today. We can say what we want, when we want, about whatever we want, at least for a little bit longer. Seems like it's diminishing a little bit. Um, we have this unique ability, which means that 
we still have the ability to seek the welfare of our city by pointing people to Jesus, and we won't get thrown into jail for that. That's an incredible privilege. But again, we have to earn the right. We have to be people of integrity. I think that too many American exiles are so consumed with their right to speak that they never stop and ask or think about the fact that they have to earn the right to be listened to. You and I have the right to speak, but we don't have, we can't demand that people listen to us. We have to live the kind of lives that give our words weight. I read a survey this past week of 10,000 Gen Zers, which I'm pretty sure is 15-year-olds to 27-year-olds, many of you in this room right now. Most of you, this survey says, it doesn't matter what kind of authority you have, it doesn't matter what kind of status you have, it doesn't matter how much money you have, if you want Gen Z to listen to you and to trust you, 65% of them have said you have to have three things, the ability to listen, transparency, and integrity. So you want... The, the city to prosper, you want Babylon to prosper, the only way that that will happen is for them to know Jesus. The only way for them to know Jesus is for you to tell them about Jesus and for them to believe. The only way for you to get them to listen to you is for you to actually live like Jesus. A faithful exile has to be a person who is known for integrity. Otherwise, it's a waste. What's the point Our success in exile, especially with the next generation of leaders, depends on our pursuit of integrity. Third, faithful exile is marked by a persistence and obedience. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God. There wasn't a question in Daniel's mind. Just like his friends, when they were told to bow down to that golden image, he didn't have to think about it. They didn't have a discussion or powwow or debate. They didn't even have to pray about it, pun intended. He just did the right thing. Daniel chose obedience over opportunity. Daniel chose faithfulness over freedom. He chose courage and commitment over compromise. He had to do what he had always done, and he had to do it <laughs> close to a window because that's what God had called him to do. God had called the exiles to pray toward Jerusalem and to, to remember that they were going to be delivered and to long for their deliverance and to hope in their deliverance. And so he's obeying. Now get this, guys. Just imagine being Daniel for a second because this is important. If you think about this situation, all Daniel had to do was just close his window for 30 days. That's all he had to do. Close your window for 30 days, pray in your closet where no one can see you and you will have comfort for the rest of your life. Let me ask you a couple questions. Would you be willing to hide your faith for a month if it meant security for the rest of your life? Would you be willing to bow to the gods of this age just for a month if it meant that your enemies would leave you alone and let you live your life in peace? Would you give up your character for 30 days if it meant that you got to hold on to your comfort? 
It's about to get heavy. We're going to get to good news in a minute. It's about to get heavy. If we're being honest with ourselves, I've, I've been honest all week with mine. If we're really evaluating our lives, then I think we would have to admit the fact that we would give in way easier and for way less than the threat of a lion's den. You know why I think that? I think that because we've already done it. We're already compromised. We've already allowed everything in the world to, to come between us and our faithfulness to God. See if this sounds familiar. Prayer has become an optional activity for the modern American exile. Meditating on the scriptures and hiding it in our heart has become peripheral in our lives. Gathering with the saints on a regular basis has become something we'll do as long as there's nothing else going on. Sharing our faith has almost become taboo. In fact, a recent survey found that 50% of my generation thinks that it's wrong to share their faith with others. Literally almost 50% of Christian millennials, practicing Christian millennials, think it's wrong, offensive to talk about Jesus with people who need to know him. Here's the thing that should be concerning for all of us as we evaluate our own lives. It's the fact that we give up all of these things on a daily basis, not because we're threatened with a den of lions, but because we are tempted by the draw of entertainment. You think you're going to stand in the lions? I doubt it. Guys, no one has to hold a gun to our heads to get us to forget about God. All they have to do is put another series on Netflix. And we're like, you know what? I don't have time. We could give up prayer for 30 days and not even think about it because we're so distracted by the pleasure devices in our hands. And then week after week, we're like, oh man, I forgot to pray again. Oh man, I, you know what? I forgot to read my Bible again. I can't remember the last time I memorized a verse. Hit something in my heart. We don't need a gun to our heads when we've got endless entertainment on our screens. We're already compromised. We've already given in. Let me ask you something. What would it look like if we actually persisted in obedience. If we actually determined in our hearts that we're gonna worship Christ and follow Christ and live for Christ and spend time with Christ, come hell or high water, nothing is gonna get in our way. Nothing will separate us from him. Nothing is going to keep us from him. Not a den of lions, not a device full of pleasures. Can you just imagine how much your life would actually change? How much the life of your family would change? How much the life of this city would change if you did that? And I've been asking myself this question for 
this whole week because I'm right there with you guys. Oh, man, I love pleasure. Oh, I'm addicted to it. Oh, I, I long, I, I just look forward to every day, like the pleasure at the end of the day. And I've been asking myself this question, not what would it look like for me to, you know, set aside prayer for 30 days. I've been asking myself this question, what would it look like for 30 days for me to actually practice what I preach? What would it look like for 30 days for me, for you? I've been asking this for you, for us to go after God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What would it look like for us, for me, in the morning to not pick up my phone and read about Manchester United, but to pick up the word, the food, the bread of life and feast on it and let it consume my soul? Then what would it look like if at night with my wife, we're lying in bed and I'm like, hey, let's not watch a show right now. Let's pick up our Bibles and read it. And before we go to sleep, let's pray together. How much would your life change and your marriage change and your neighborhood change if you actually put it into practice for 30 days? Just give it a try, 30 days. If we persisted in obedience. Oh, man. I know what it would look like. <laughs> it would look like Daniel in Babylon. It would look like a man prospering and a, an entire kingdom prospering because of him. Man, I want that for my life and I want it for yours and I want it for this city. If God would raise up exiles like that today, obstinate, determined exiles, persisting in obedience to him. Can you just dream with me for your life right now? Just dream with me for a minute. What could happen this week if you tried it? Fourth, a faithful exile is empowered by the practice of prayer. Look back at verse 10 and notice how the text says that Daniel prayed three times a day. And this is the key phrase, as he had done previously. This is not a new thing for Daniel. Prayer is not something that he just decided to do in his moment of crisis. It was a habit. It was a practice. It defined every day of his entire life. And this is so important for us to get because if we want to be faithful in our exile, this is where the power comes from. On our knees. This is where the war is fought and the battle is won. Prayer is, so much, is about so much more than just doing what we know is right. Because if you've grown up in church, we know that prayer is the right thing to do. We know we're supposed to be disciplined in prayer, but it is so much more than just something that we check off a list and say, well, I did my prayer today. I did it. I think sometimes we think that prayers like going to the gym or prayers like eating healthy or, or prayers like, you know, reading a chapter in a book every day or whatever your goal is. Like it's something that we know is good and we, we should want to do it and we should be disciplined in it. But it's just a discipline thing. Guys, prayer is, is not like that. Um, prayer is not so much a discipline issue. Prayer at its core is a dependence issue. Prayer is all about where you think you get the resources you need to live out your day. And so if, if you think you've got the resources, you won't pray. Because you're just going to live out in your own strength. 
But if you know you don't have the resources, you will start your day on your knees. It will be the air that you breathe. You will cut the rope of your sin. You will raise the sail of your boat and you will say, Spirit, guide me today. I need your power. I need your direction. I need your grace today. It's not about filling up your schedule with another practice. It is about filling up your soul with the Spirit's power. If you want to be a faithful exile, you have to have a practice of prayer, a consistent, a regular going to God for his divine strength. Now, the reason that Daniel was able to persist in obedience, the reason that he was able to pursue integrity, the reason that he was able to maintain a passion for excellence is because he had this daily practice of dependence. In one of his teachings on prayer, J.D. Greer talked about this scene in the garden where Jesus is praying and he's asking his disciples to pray. And I thought that this was so profound. It was, it was great insight. I'll share it with you. So Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he brings his three closest disciples with them. And he says, listen, I need you to pray with me for an hour. And he says, pray with me for an hour so that you can withstand temptation. And then he goes further into the garden and he prays by himself. And you know how this, this story goes. It's, it's epic. It's the great victory over the enemy and over all of the forces within him that wanted him to give up and give in. And he wins and he comes back and his disciples are sleeping. And, and they're like, he's like, what are you doing? And they're like pretending that they were praying. They're like, oh, in Jesus' name, amen. And, and, and then they're like, oh, I didn't know you were there. And he's not falling for it. They fall asleep. Now, what's going on here? Was it a lack of discipline or was it a misunderstanding of what, what they needed in the moment? Because what do we know about Peter? We know that Peter was the man. We know that Peter was a leader. We know that he was strong. We know he was a warrior. We know that he was packing some serious steel that night and he was ready for action. He was ready and we know that right before they got to the garden, he told Jesus, I don't care what happens tonight. I don't care if everyone else falls away. I'm not falling away. Why? Because I'm the man. Because I'm Peter. I'm the leader of this band of men and women. He wasn't dependent on God. He was dependent on himself. So what happens later that night? He gives into temptation. He doesn't pass the test. He denies Jesus three times. And then here's the question that JD asked that I thought was so profound. It hit me like a ton of bricks this past week. What if Peter had stayed awake and prayed for one hour like Jesus told him to? Just pray for one hour so that you can resist temptation. What if he had done it? Jesus says to Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we would all say yes and amen to that. Guys, I feel my weakness every day. So do you. What if prayer is God's means of strengthening our spirit so that we can avoid temptation and so that the world's power over us is broken? What if it's so much more than a box you check off a list? What if it's actually the way that we receive the life-giving, life-changing, life-empowering power of God? If you think you can be faithful 
in exile on your own, then you'll never pray and you will fail every single time. But if you know your weakness and if you know your need, then you will wake up every day asking him for his help. It will be a part of your life. It'll be a rhythm of your life. It'll be a habit of your life. And you will do what Paul said. You're just gonna pray without ceasing because all day you're gonna feel your need and you're gonna need his strength. And if you do that, guys, guess what? You will be able to stand in the face of temptation. You will be able to stand in the trial. They could throw entertainment at you or they could throw lions at you and you will be able to say, I'm not falling, I'm not caving in. You can persist. Daniel's success in exile flowed out of his consistency in prayer. All right, let's wrap it up. Fifth, a faithful exile is motivated by the person of Christ. Can I tell you something really incredible about Daniel 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Not only is it not primarily about a lion's den, not only is it not primarily about an angel coming and shutting up some lion's mouths and this incredible miracle of deliverance, it's also not primarily about a faithful exile either. At its core, Daniel in the lion's den is really about the faithful exile. Not just Daniel, but the one that he was pointing us to. The one who would come after him, the one that he's about to describe in his vision in Daniel chapter 7 as the son of man. Guys, the reason that we're reading Daniel 6 today the reason that we're even attempting to follow in this man's footsteps is because and only because he is a shadow of the one that was to come. Everything about this story of Daniel and the lion's den is meant to point us to Jesus. For example, Daniel was in exile longing to be back home with his family in Jerusalem. Jesus was in exile longing for the same exact thing to be home with his father and his newly adopted brothers and sisters in a new Jerusalem that he would create. Daniel is hunted by evil men and condemned by a self-serving king. Guess who else was? Jesus. Daniel's king was Darius. Jesus' was Pilate. In his moment of temptation, Daniel prayed just like Jesus did. Even after the prayer, he's thrown into a pit just like Jesus was. Just as the angel closed the jaws of death that threatened Daniel's life, so too Christ broke the jaws of death that threatened all of our lives. A stone was placed over Daniel's pit. A stone was rolled in front of Jesus's tomb. And yet both of them walked out unharmed and unscathed. Both men were rescued and delivered by the power of God. Everything about Daniel in this story is meant to point us to Christ. And so everything about his example is nothing more than a shadow of the one who's to come after him. This story isn't just about a bunch of lions, guys. This story is about the lion. This story is not just about Daniel's deliverance. This story is about our deliverance. It's not just a story about how to live in exile. It's a story about the one who came to bring us back home. That's what Daniel 6 is all about. 
And as we remember the gospel and as we prepare for the table now, we remember that Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah, as we sang earlier, but he was the lion that became the lamb. And the reason that he was able to shut the jaws of death forever was because he allowed death to swallow him up. That even though the power of God was willing and able to deliver Daniel from the lions, Jesus said, I am willing to go through it I'm willing to not be delivered. I'm willing to be forsaken. I'm willing for darkness to encompass me and the wrath of God to pour over me and I'm willing to go to the depths of hell itself so that none of my brothers and sisters will ever have to. He's the greater Daniel in every single way and I want you to hear this as we go from here because this is hard and a lot of this is hard. Jesus has not asked you to do anything for him that he has not already done for you. You think the commands of Christ are hard? Obedience, persistence and obedience is hard. It's not hard, it's impossible. But with the Spirit's help, we will be able to accomplish it. But get this, as hard as it is to obey the commands of Christ, which is harder? doing what he did or doing what he's called us to do. He's asked us to be obedient in the face of death. He was obedient in the face of the cross. He's asked us to be faithful remnants in the presence of men. He bore the wrath of God, which is harder. Jesus is not asking you to do anything for him that he has not done for you. And let me give you another Reminder before we close, he's not asking you to do this for him so that he can give you his love. He's asking you to do this for him because he's already placed his love on you. You're already one of his. The reason you're in exile now is because he's already prepared a home for you in heaven. And so we long for that day and we pray with our windows open and we look forward to that day when we will ultimately be delivered from the lion's den forever and we will be with him forever until that day we do everything we can to bring others near. As we bless our city, we will be blessed. Guys, I'm gonna close now. Um, I'm going to close, and we've been doing this for the last couple of weeks, and I want to keep doing this. I don't want to close in prayer. I want you to, to pray silently where you are. I want you to ask the Spirit to speak to you, to convict you, to encourage you. I want you to confess what you need to confess again. And I want you to tell your king right now, your God right now, what it is that this requires of you. And I want you to ask him for his help. And then after we do that, we'll go to the table together and we'll celebrate Christ's sacrifice for us. So bow your head. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to stand, you can stand.